0: Dear Father, please be with each person here just now. For students especially that uh, have a lot of uh, stress and thoughts about tests and boards coming up, please be with them. And during this time, please uh, give them uh, an assurance of your presence in their life. And also as we talk about the Three Angels message, please provide some clarity about what our message to the world is to be during this time. Amen. Okay, so again, for those of you that haven't been here, we've spent three weeks going through the three cycles, seals, trumpets, bowls, and we've been trying to tie everything together, as many interpreters of Revelation have seen, which is at the heart of the book here is chapters 12 to 14, the war in heaven, the cosmic conflict, the dragon, and how the rest of the book kind of revolves around uh, that issue. So we're pulling out some other really important details, and I just realized here on this Bible study uh, especially that um, it really requires not just uh, readership, but uh, re-readership. Sigmund has talked a lot about that concept, especially with Revelation, is uh, you just really need to uh, be immersed in this book, read and reread, and try to see how the different parts um, put together. So I'm going to give you my interpretation of, of some, some of these passages but it really does require some time on your part, I think, just to thoughtfully and slowly uh, read through um, the book. Okay, so we're going to talk about the three angels' messages, which are in Revelation 14. Okay, but I think we kind of need to see what is coming into that in Revelation 13. So we've talked about that in Revelation 13, we have these two imitative lamb-like beasts, okay, and how the wording is the same, the violently slaughtered lamb, that the, the imitative Aspects of the lamb here is really interesting. And we've read this verse several times that the beast was allowed to make proud claims which were insulting to God. It was permitted to have authority for 42 months. Now that's interesting. And it began to curse God and his name. Now, the 42 months here, um, this is the same as the times, time, and half a time, the three and a half years. And this is something that, that comes from uh, Daniel also. And probably none of you were here when we did Daniel. I think it's been more than two years, but we spent quite a lot of time going through the different beasts there in Daniel. So uh, just briefly, I want to kind of tie this into uh, what was described here in in Daniel. Okay? So I'm just going to tell you kind of the, the summary without trying to put in all the details that we did when we actually went through this passage in Daniel and kind of make that as a claim for what this passage is talking about in Revelation. So, so in Daniel, uh, we have this description. As I was watching, a fourth beast appeared. It was powerful, horrible, terrifying. With its huge iron teeth, it crushed its victims and then it trampled on them. Unlike the other beasts, it had ten horns. Okay, well, we've got a 10 horn beast in Revelation also. And while I was staring at the horns, I saw a little horn coming up among the others. It tore out three of the horns that were already there. This horn had human eyes and a mouth that was boasting proudly, okay, kind of similar to the description uh, there in Revelation 13. And this is the explanation I was given. The fourth beast is a fourth empire that will be on the earth and will be different from all other empires. The other empires, and it's interesting in Daniel, even the names are given. This beast was Medo-Persia. This beast was Greece. Okay, and this beast is different. It will crush the whole earth and trample it down. Okay, the ten kings are, uh, horns are ten kings who will rule that empire. And then another king will appear. He will be very different from the earlier ones. He will overthrow three kings. He will speak against the supreme God and oppress God's people. And what's interesting about this last uh, little horn is what would appear to be the, the religious aspect of this. Okay, will speak against God, oppress God's people. He would try to change their religious laws and festivals and God's people will be under his power for three and a half years. Okay, that's the 42 months in Revelation, the time's time, half a time. It's the same um, time period that's mentioned here. Okay, and in Daniel 8, this is kind of repetitive All here, also here in Daniel, that out of one of these four horns grew a little horn whose power extended toward the south and the east and toward the promised land. Okay, again, there's would seem to be a, a, a spiritual aspect to this beyond just a, another kingdom of the world. It grew strong enough to attack the army of heaven, the stars themselves. It threw some of them to the ground and trampled on them. It even defied the prince of the heavenly army. Okay. Could that be a reference to Jesus? Stopped the daily sacrifices offered to him and ruined the temple. People sinned there instead of offering the proper daily sacrifices. And I, I like uh, what we could maybe say as a summary and true religion, or in some versions just truth, was thrown to the ground. The horn was successful in everything it did. So this last horn, um, unlike just you know, conquering territories and all of that, the, the, the spiritual aspect, truth or true religion, was thrown to the ground. Kay? And so, uh, again, when we went through Daniel, we said that whoever this is being described, it's a very big foot. Okay, this, this last beast and the little horn, um, it, it's someone really large. So the usual in, uh, interpretation of Antiochus Epiphanes, who historically was a, a very minor, small, weak character, that foot is too small um, to fit the shoe that's being described. Okay, and, and if we just read on further about this last uh, uh, little horn that, and about the vision, that the vision has to do with the end of the world keep it secret, because it will be a long time before it does come true. Again, that wouldn't fit for the, the interpretation of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay? So with that little brief, um, um, going back into Daniel here, if we see the beast here is Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and, and I would like the interpretation that, that the beast here is uh, first pagan Rome, and then the, the little horn coming out of that is, well, why don't I put Catholicism? I'm putting Christianity here. And the reason is that for over a thousand years, the Catholic Church was the Christian Church. Okay, You want to come to find out about Christ? There, there's the Church. And so I think it's perhaps what is being described here is a version of Christianity um, that has some problems. And I'll just list a few. Um, just consider Jesus, his humble life, his suffering. And he would say about himself, foxes have holes, birds have ears. Uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And you just consider his humble life with the church for over a thousand years, which was powerful, rich. And if you've ever uh, read Martin Luther's description of going to Rome for the first time and seeing what it was actually like and how uh, appalled he was by all of that, how it seemed so unchrist-like to him. Okay, again, quite a Quite a contrast. And if we just look at some of the things that were said about God uh, during that time, or the implications. Okay, so uh, of course, Martin Luther uh, revolted against this whole idea of uh, the selling of indulgences. Uh, I mentioned just the incredible uh, greed of the church during that time. Uh, cruelty, where Jesus said, Love your enemies, and now we're burning our enemies at the stake. Okay, that even torture could be justified if maybe it could uh, do something for the better good or maybe even usher that person into the kingdom. So we have the stake, the Inquisition, we have war and crusades under the name of Christ. Uh, we have uh, the idea that uh, you can't come directly to God, but you need someone in between Okay, that can put in a good word for you. Uh, the doctrine of uh, infallibility and really restriction of knowledge, such great efforts made to keep the Bible out of the language of the common person. Had to be interpreted by someone else. Okay, and how many of the Bible translators uh, were burned at the stake for trying to translate the Bible into the language of the, the common people. Okay, all of these things, I think, are really a, a gross distortion from uh, the message of Jesus. And I would kind of lump in, into that the, the doctrine of a, an eternally burning hell. So Lord Acton is famous for the quote, Power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and the church, instead of, again, what, what's the power of the Christian? And we've said, using Greg Boyd's uh, words here, that it's towel power, it's service. And the church instead adopted the power over um, idea, okay, really joining with the state, using, uh, using all the methods of the kingdoms of the world to coerce and to force, okay, not the methods of Christ. And uh, so I would take that to this, this first beast there that is being described in Revelation 13. And what's interesting then is we have uh, the resurgence of another beast, another lamb-like beast. And I would say this is uh, religious coercion, version 2. Okay, that another beast which came up out of the earth, that had two horns like a lamb's horns. Again, it's lamb-like, claims to be the lamb. But it's not. It's lamb-like. But it spoke like a dragon. Okay? And I would say that is more getting towards um, our time today. Okay, so with that background here, to get into the three angels' message, um, I think this is really the message for our time. This is the message we are to be giving right now. And so Revelation 14 goes into a description of the 144,000. And we talked last time about the significance of having the Father's name written on their foreheads. Okay, and, and here's the message, and I realized we're only going to get through the first two today. Okay? So this is really the two angels' message here today, and next time we'll get to the third. So the first one here is, is really significant. Then I saw another angel flying high in the air with an eternal or an everlasting message of good news to announce to the peoples of the earth, to every race, tribe, language, and nation. He said in a loud voice, honor God and praise his greatness, for the time has come for him to judge all people. Worship him who made heaven, earth, sea, and the springs of water. Okay, so the the message here is the eternal or the everlasting message of the good news. Okay, which really begs the question, what is the good news? Okay, if you had to write it out in a few sentences, what is the good news? That's the message. Okay, and so uh, we'll just pick a few places here in uh, mainly the writings of Paul to try to make a case for what the good news is. So Romans, of course, has a lot to say about the good news. The book opens, from Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and appointed to spread the good news of, or the good news about, God. God had already promised this good news through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, and it's amazing, especially in Isaiah, how much the good news is mentioned. This good news is about his Son our lord jesus christ okay the good news notice is about a person good news is about the son okay now what is the good news okay and uh, so romans 1 16 and 17 this is really paul's thesis it's kind of the core of of the book here so it's important how we understand these words for i am not ashamed of the gospel or the good news for it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Okay, but, but what's the essence of the message? For the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. From faith to faith. And we'll, we'll come to the last part of the verse. This is the, the net Bible, which is, uh, has over 62,000 translators' comments. It's really interesting. But notice, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. The gospel is about the righteousness of God. Now, many other translations have it this way. I like the Good News Bible, but um, I don't care for this particular translation, which is, For the gospel reveals how God puts people right with Himself. So, this, this passage here can really be translated two different ways either the righteousness or the good news is the righteousness of God, or the good news is that we are put right with God. Now, they're both good news, right? Whether you either way, uh, you look at it, but what is the good news um, You know, in, in capital letters? And you can see here a lot of the more, especially the more literal uh, translations here, the New Revised Standard, New King James, New American Standard, the English Standard, TNIV, all have it this way. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And I understand that is the more natural way of uh, translating um, this passage here. But I think we can we can make this case from many other places in scripture. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, I read N.T. Wright's book called Justification, and he has uh, an interesting section on this, and I'm not going to try to pronounce the Latin here, but he said uh, on this passage, let me start with a bold double claim. Unless there had grown up in the Western church a long tradition of reading this phrase we're talking about, God's righteousness as, and here's the Latin, then, um, and then B, trying to interpret that phrase with the various meanings of the Latin that were available at that time, and C, interpreting that in turn within the categories of theological investigation of the time, unless all this had happened, nobody would ever have supposed that the righteousness in question in Romans 1.17 was anything other than God's own righteousness unveiled, as in a great apocalypse before the watching world. Okay? But uh, here, I, I think this is my favorite passage in the Bible, actually, about what is the good news in 2 Corinthians 4. Okay? Where Paul would say, For if the good news we preach is hidden, it is hidden only from those who are being lost. They do not believe because their minds have been kept in the dark by the evil God of this world. Okay? So there is someone who's desperately trying to. Um, Hide or to cloud the essence of the good news from our minds, the evil God of this world. He keeps them from seeing the light shining on them, the light that comes from the good news about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Now, what does that mean? That the devil tries to keep from us the light that comes from the good news about the glory of Christ. What is the glory of Christ? Okay, we often associate uh, brightness with the glory of Christ. But of course, Christ didn't walk around as a bright superbeam, except on the Mount of Transfiguration. So what is the glory of Christ? Notice, who is the exact likeness of God? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For it is not ourselves that we preach. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The God who said, out of darkness the light shall shine, is the same God who made his light shine in our hearts to bring us the knowledge of God's glory shining in the face of Christ. So uh, the good news is the light that comes from the glory of Christ who is God, who is the exact likeness of God. So kind of important here how do we understand uh, the glory of Christ? And uh, a passage we've read so many times here it's kind of the kind of the core passage that we've used for this Bible study, Jesus some of his last words to his disciples in the upper room. I have shown your glory, speaking to the Father on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. Okay, what was it? I spelled out your character or your name in detail to the men and women you gave me. So the, the ultimate glory of God is not so much that he's powerful and bright. That's all true. Okay, but the glory ultimately is the character of God that was revealed by Jesus. I would say that's the, the essence of the good news. That is the glory of God. And this this concept about glory and character is a familiar one in the Bible, Um, several places in the Old Testament, Haggai. But uh, the one I like the best here is in Exodus, where Moses says, please show me your glory. Or in some translations, show me the dazzling light of your presence. Okay, And we expect to see what God looks like. But instead, the description is that the Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him there, proclaimed the name of the Lord, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. So the, the glory that came before Moses here was a description, really, of who God is. Okay, so the, the glory and the character I think we could, we could see as uh, somewhat synonymous here. Okay, and just uh, one more on the kind of the adversary working against the good news. Uh, Galatians opens with some really hard words. Paul says, I'm surprised at you, in no time at all you are deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are accepting another gospel. Actually there is no other gospel. But I say this because there are some people who are upsetting you and trying to change the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that is different from the one we preached, may he be condemned to hell. And it's just interesting, I think, that, I mean, who was the first one that proclaimed a false gospel? Wasn't it an angel from heaven? Okay, but that's uh, kind of like in 2 Corinthians, that the evil God of this world tries to keep us from that true message. All right, so just just a couple of uh, uh, quotes here that I would see in harmony with the description of the good news being about the kind of person that God is, uh, from a book called Christ Object Lesson, kind of uh, tying into this final message to the world, the third angel's message. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed. A message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. Okay, what's the message? His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory. The light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. Okay, that's his glory. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of his character of love. Okay, And, and some of you might be familiar with, with Graham Maxwell who had the a real influence on my life, and he heard him say this so many times, I don't need the slide up here, but he said that the good news is that God is not the kind of person that Satan has made him out to be. Since the great controversy began, it has been Satan's studied purpose to persuade angels and men that God is not worthy of their faith and love. He has pictured the Creator as harsh, a harsh, demanding tyrant who lays arbitrary requirements upon his people just to show his authority and to test their willingness to obey. And and it goes on. So, um, Again, that, that good news, I would see, just all centering in on the kind of person that God is, and that's what we see in the life of Jesus. Now, I would like, uh, even though this maybe gets away a little bit from Revelation, just to finish off the last part of the verse. So, the, in the good news, the righteousness of God. Can we? I mean, That's a, a Latin word. Can we use something other than righteousness? Uh, trustworthiness? Uh, character? Maybe other things. But uh, that's what is in the good news. And notice that the result has something to do with faith. Okay? Um, and through faith, for faith, as it is written. Now, where do we find that? Remember, any time, I think it's such a good principle of interpreting the New Testament, when you find something from the Old Testament, read all around it. Where is it written? That the one who is righteous will live by faith. Do any of you know where is that written? Habakkuk, yes. So, what does this refer to in the book of Habakkuk? Habakkuk is complaining. Okay, this doesn't seem right, what's going on in the world. God, you just don't seem like you're doing the right thing. And he's very blunt with God. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save me? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong... Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And Habakkuk says, I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. And then the Lord finally came and basically said, well, it's it's actually going to get worse, Habakkuk, but hang in there. The righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. So the, the setting there is Habakkuk, trust me, even though it may be hard in this time to put your trust in me. The righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. So that whole meaning that there of Habakkuk and God's reply to Habakkuk is what we should take into this little verse in um, Romans. So Richard Hayes, who was here a few years ago, um, said that thus when reading Paul who, who quotes Habakkuk 2:4, we cannot help hearing the echoes unless we are tone deaf, of Habakkuk's theodicy question. Bad world, good God, how does that work? By showcasing this text virtually as an epigraph at the beginning of the letter to the Romans, Paul links his gospel to the Old Testament prophetic affirmation of God's justice and righteousness. Okay, so um, it really is an issue about um, putting our trust in God. The one who is righteous will live by faith or by trust. So, as I would maybe try to unpack this passage, I would say that the good news is that God is indeed righteous. That God is indeed precisely as Jesus revealed him to be. That's the good news. And the result is that this restores our trust in God. And I think Paul makes it very clear, as you read on those first eight chapters of Romans, that God will save everyone who trusts him. He reveals himself in Jesus Christ. Do you trust that kind of a God Well, we're put right with God when we put our trust in him. That's the message I see in those first eight chapters of Romans. And that's the essence of uh, the good news. Okay, so that's the message. The message we go out to the world with is a message about the kind of person God is, to restore trust to the true God. And the second message then is uh, interesting. How does it relate? So a second angel followed the first one, saying, She has fallen. Great Babylon is fallen. She made all peoples drink her wine, the strong wine of her immoral lust. Okay, so first of all, who's Babylon? And I shouldn't have put all these in here, but we have a a lot on Babylon, okay? Um, And especially here, uh, Revelation 17 has a really long description of who Babylon is. Babylon the great, mother of whores and of earth's abominations, Babylon is a great city, the great, the great city, the great city. Okay, but uh, who does it refer to? And so we need to read Revelation 17 to understand uh, what is being described in the second angel's message. So the spirit took control of me and the angel carried me to a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a red beast that had names, insulting to God written all over it. The beast had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and covered with gold ornaments, precious stones and pearls. In her hand, she held a gold cup full of obscene and filthy things, the result of her her immorality. On her forehead was written a name that has a secret meaning, Great Babylon, the mother of all prostitutes and perverts in the world. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's people and the blood of those who were killed because they had been loyal to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was completely amazed. Okay, there's another way of translating that, amazed, which we'll talk about. But notice that uh, the woman, Babylon is the woman who is sitting on this beast. Okay, so what's involved here is prostitution. Okay, that's the wording of what's being described in in Revelation 17. So uh, what is the biblical meaning of prostitution? Okay, just a few Old Testament verses on this. In Ezekiel, and this is always referring to Israel, God's people that have become prostitutes. In Ezekiel 16, you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your fame and lavished your whorings on any passerby. And in Hosea 9, again, referring to Israel, do not rejoice, O Israel. Do not exult as other nations do, for you have played the whore, departing from your God. You have loved a prostitute's pay on all threshing floors. Okay, and I think one more in Isaiah. How the faithful city has become a whore. She that was full of justice, righteousness, lodged in her, but now murderers. Oh, one more. Jeremiah. For long ago you broke your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not serve. On every high hill and under every green tree you sprawled and played the whore. So the the prostitution here is really a falling away of unfaithfulness. It's God's people that have fallen away from the true message. So in the Old Testament, the woman charged with prostitution is Israel. And I think the the Babylon, in Revelation, then, is really the fallen church. The church has fallen, and that falling away, just like in the Old Testament references, is um, uh, this case refers to uh, God's people, the church. So, questions. What is the core identity of the woman sitting on the beast in Revelation 17? I would say it is the church, not the true church, just like when we talked about the church during the Dark Ages, but it is the church in name. And here is the really interesting question, because there's another woman in Revelation. And this is the woman in Revelation 12, who's sitting on the sun, the woman who the dragon is trying to chase after. Are these two women related in any way? she in any way related to the fleeing woman of Revelation 12? And if she is, what happened? Okay, so coming back here to Revelation 17, that John is carried away in the spirit. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. Okay, the, the woman is really identified, I think, with the blasphemous claims of the beast that had seven heads and ten horns. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. And when John saw this, he was greatly amazed. And as several people have said, maybe we can go stronger than just saying amazed. I was appalled. Just imagine that you're John. You're having this revelation. And you first see the church on the sun. Okay? Church in its purity, being traced, chased by the dragon. Okay? And then as the vision unfolds, you now see the church sitting on the beast and doing all the things that is being described. I mean, that is a dramatic, that is an appalling vision, Okay, that the church could so dramatically fall away and actually be united with the methods of the beast. And uh, I would see a lot of this related to, you know, we talk about separation of church and state. Well, When the church really becomes united in using the methods of the state, which is always power over, coercion, force, those kinds of methods, um, those are the polar opposite of the methods of Christ. So very, very damaging when the church really unites itself in presenting itself in that way. So if we kind of try to put it all together, in Revelation 12, the dragon chases the woman, but then it goes away. And then we have these surrogate powers, these lamb-like creatures, Come out. Okay, to deceive by appearing to be Christ in some way. And the method is imitation and slandering of God and persecution. And then finally, we have the woman who falls and agrees with the beast, unites with the beast. And then what we see in the end of the plagues here is that the dragon will appear again on the scene at the end. So it's, it's kind of interesting um, here this progression. Alright, so I think, uh, you know, we, we see this throughout the Dark Ages where, the, again, the method of evangelism was power over force. Just imagine, you know, being conquered in the name of Christ, okay? Christ laid down his life for enemies and that the church would try to coerce and force numbers in. Instead of being the persecuted minority, became the persecuting majority. does not look like Christ, okay? How damaging that is to, to God's reputation. And uh, just a a last verse here. I just think this is so uh, wonderful here, this passage where the the scene is the disciples are walking to the upper room. And in that setting, an argument broke out as to which of them should be thought of as the greatest. Isn't it just amazing here? We're, We're coming to the death of Jesus and the disciples are arguing about which of them should be the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the pagans... Have power over their people, and the rulers claim the title friends of the people. Okay, that's kingdom of the world stuff. Who's the greatest? Power over. But this is not the way it is with you. Rather, the greatest one among you must be like the youngest, and the leader must be like the servant. So we have a parallel here between kingdoms of the world, and all kingdoms of the world are that way, okay, without exception. And here we have the kingdom of God. Okay, and when the kingdom of God is lived out on earth, it, it looks totally different. It always looks like Jesus. I think that's the key thing. Always looks like Jesus. And service here would be the, the key thing. So, what is so damaging then about, I think, the church? Um, so often, this uh, is involved with uh, nationalistic idolatry, uniting with ways of the world, with kingdoms of the world is it's kind of like a vaccine. You know, you vaccine, you give a a dead virus. Okay, and what is the result? You inoculate the individual from receiving the real virus. Okay, now that's a good thing. Okay, but when a dead version of Christianity is presented, when something that presents itself in the name of Christ, but it really isn't, uh, what's the effect? It inoculates the world against receiving the real message of good news. And... Um, some of you might have uh, read a recent book that looked at surveys of attitudes that people have towards Christians, and evangelical Christians are way down at the bottom in terms of just how they're perceived um, in the world today. And often when you say you're a Christian, people might associate it with a lot of things that you wouldn't want to associate with being a Christian. So th- this kind of uh, inoculation effect here is, is very harming, harmful, and I think that's what John expresses when he sees the woman on the beast. And he says, I was appalled. So I think next time we will um, pick up with the, the third angel's uh, message. We'll go from there. All right, let's pray. <coughs> Dear Father, we we'll just pray for each person here that we become more settled in our mind about who you are, what you look like, and what your kingdom looks like. And that we would actively choose to be a part of your kingdom, to work with you in living out the life of Christ on earth, and to restore trust in who you are. Amen.